0: and welcome to that's messed up, N S V U podcast. I'm Kara Clank.
1: And I'm Lisa Traeger, and every week we talk about an episode of SVU, the true crime it's based on, and then we have a guest from the episode, and now we gab. <laughs> we catch up. We chit-chat. Obviously, yeah. the top of my mind is Melissa McCarthy outside of a wiener schnitzel <laughs> getting honks for Mar- Mariska Hargitay. Rallying rallying support for Mariska Hargitay. I didn't even know they were friends. This is like a whole new level of celeb friendship I needed to know about, and we need to get on the on SVU
0: yes if they're good friends why hasn't she been on SVU yet I don't know that's a really great question because I feel like a lot of her good friends have been on it get her on it she would be an amazing criminal she's never gotten Hillary swank on it either yeah but I think Hillary doesn't want to do it yeah. Hillary
1: doesn't work. When was the last time she worked? No, but
0: Melissa McCarthy is that perfect example of like this sweet goofball. And like, it would be so funny to see her as like a killer or like a psycho mom or something. We've seen her you know? as a
1: criminal, but in a chill
0: way. Yeah. In that forgery movie. I yes. watched it on a plane. Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which I love, which our, our friend's sister directed. Really? Yeah. Emily Heller's sister directed that. Movie. I didn't know she directed that one. Mm-hmm. She is busy yeah you know
1: what is cool all those emmy nominations came out and i know so many people nominated for emmys I know. and i'm just like uh what am i, I in hollywood like <laughs> i just can't
0: believe there's so many talented friends everywhere yeah congratulations to all of our pals who have been nominated for emmys i i want nicole Bayer to win an emmy it just means rupaul won't get an emmy but rupaul has so many emmys so just give nicole Bayer a fucking emmy if you're in the Academy listening and RuPaul would be happy for Nicole. I don't yes. think
1: RuPaul would be like, fuck that bitch. Let's slit her through. I think she right. would be like, hell yeah. My
0: girl. Yeah, exactly.
1: Cause that video you posted of her in the wheelchair with a boot on her leg being wheeled around wipe out was that deserves an Emmy in its own.
0: <laughs> I took many of those. I took like four of those on different days and was like, I'm going to make these into a montage for you. And I just never did it. No, that would be too tough. But um, yeah, <laughs>
1: Bowen Yang is that iceberg. He's got to win oh, being yeah. the iceberg from Titanic. That's that's gold. Yeah.
0: There's like also, yeah, people are nominated for like little categories that like, you know, performing in a short or like in other stuff, too. It's just a lot of people that are in our inner and secondary circles. Are- yeah, maybe I can get myself.
1: Oh, and Hacks, her favorite show. But maybe I can yeah. get our um, to an after party. That'll be the goal
0: Um A comic last night At my show Was like Safe space And I was like Sure Cause you know I love to talk shit She was like I don't like hacks And I was like I can't talk to you About this I'm sorry <laughs> Like hacks Is basically To me A perfect show Wait You can
1: it. bleep her in- well, Who was it Bleep, bleep <laughs> the name Let's do <laughs> Who was <is> it <laughs> Well it was
0: I don't know if you know her.
1: I do know her, but I thought it was going to be our good friend, Blair. And I was like, do I have to stop speaking to Blair? No, no, Um,
0: no. I don't feel like Blair would have a hot take on hacks, to be (laughs) honest. No. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she was like, can we like and I think she thought I was going to be like, yes, I hate it, too. And I was like, oh, I I really can't. I like loved it so much. And I was very public about how much I love it. So I really can't like talk shit with you right now. But I wanted to really quickly shout out to the dozens and dozens of listeners who contacted us about their pop rock fellatio experiences. Uh, I would say nine out of 10 of you did not enjoy it at all. I heard we got a lot of stories about pop rocks getting stuck in pee holes. We got stories about guys saying it felt like sandpaper on their junk. A couple girls were like, it made it taste better. Or, like, he kind of liked it. A couple people said they had a good time with it, but not very many. Most people thought it was a bad endeavor. Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't want, it's, yeah, I don't get it, honestly. Like, somebody also wrote that you have to get fresh Pop Rocks. Like, you can't get stale ones. Like, you have to check and make sure that they're really fresh. So, just How do a you tip check if that? anyone's playing. I don't know. It's like. I think you can kind of tell maybe by shaking the package if they are like are loose and they're shaken up that they're that they're more, like they're not stuck together. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm literally spitballing here. I don't know.
1: I don't know if I've mentioned this on the pod before, but I remember there were rumors um, that a girl gave a blowjob and got bubblegum stuck in the guy's pubes. Uh. <laughs> and it was I was a young age where I was like shocked that anyone's even
0: sucking a dick. And so but I remember being like, oh, I guess they're cool. Yeah, you know? that sounds like a something about Mary type of thing that would happen. Ugh.
1: Well, yeah, there was some I mean, childhood rumors are wild. There was one guy on my football team. Everyone said he fucked a dog. And oh, it was yeah. just like, yep, John fucked a dog. That's that. <laughs> um, There was one girl where they're like, yeah, an orchestra. She had pubes in her braces. And it's like re-
0: really i don't know yeah. just i yeah rumors are crazy but yeah i was um everybody was i love our audience is very like open and everybody was just like okay here's what happened when i sucked my boyfriend's dick like everybody was just very open telling us what's up in the dms and i think it's um it's a no for me on the pop rocks bj but
1: i do remember for some reason this is a vivid memory of mine from a cosmo i read when i was in high school but it said to like put hair ties around dicks and i was like this, this is, you don't need accessories. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I was just like, they're like, take the scrunchie off your head, tie it on a dick. And I'm like, adults are crazy.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> adults are crazy.
1: I mean, this has stuck with me now for what, 18 years? Like I can't. Cosmo
0: was like so fun to read when you were like 13. Like it was so like. If you're a grown up oh reading God. Cosmo, you need help. Go, you need, you need <laughs> professional help. You need an intervention.
1: Cosmo is for children.
0: Yeah. You know what I started reading after like I would, I was like maybe 14, 15, if I'd be like on a flight or something, I would start getting Maxim. no, I would get Maxim. I actually thought that the articles were really funny.
1: Mm. Yeah. Vanity Fair to me is the, the king of. Well,
0: that's the adult. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm a subscriber.
1: <laughs> One day, maybe I'll get a New Yorker. And this is the thing with the New Yorker. I start an article and then I'm like, I'll finish this later. Never finish it later. Yeah. So I know like the first four paragraphs of every New Yorker article that's
0: geared towards me. And then I just I can't. Well, Vanity Fair and New Yorker both will do sometimes like really good, long ass exposes about crimes like they will do like really. I remember reading about Amanda Knox, I think, in Vanity Fair, like a lot of um, I've read about a lot of like kind of more obscure murders that maybe happen like abroad in those publications. And they're fun. I, I always like when like there's a sort of a crimey one in one of those.
1: Yeah, there's a new crimey Netflix show, but. I think it's dubbed and um, oh, and in San pa- about Brazil. Yeah. And, and what is it when the
0: letters when it's letters? Oh, subtitles. Yeah, I don't want it. No, well, listen, it's not. I started re- I started watching it. They dubbed the whole thing. So it's just other people's voices are speaking English. OK, OK, I can handle that. I don't think I had it with subtitles on. I don't think I think because well,
1: like- I love a doc where the killer goes. Yeah, I killed him yeah but this is why you know i like but it's
0: kind of interesting like the we don't have that much dubbing in the u.s like and so it feels like because like english is so you know the main language in a lot of places and like it's it's like there are they are like voice actors like there's a woman that's acting as this woman who killed her husband you know and she's like he called me this like he tried to take my daughter away and it's just it's like an interesting i don't know like to dub for a documentary and not like you know what I mean? Not for movies or like fiction. It's interesting. What I did instead
1: of watch that as I watched, I would say 40 episodes of manifest. Oh yes. That's <laughs> your new thing. <laughs> yeah. And I watched, this is pop. I watched um, that. Uh, it's like every episode's about a different, Story about pop music, oh, and yeah, the one yeah, that yeah. I was telling care about, this is the one that I'm the most obsessed with. Is the one about Sweden. It's episode three, and it's all about that record label, Max Martin, Dennis Pops, and like all the Swedish hitmakers up until now. Like I didn't realize that the Swedes were still doing all the Demi Lovato songs, mm-hmm. all the like um "This Is America" that song. Yeah. Like that's a Swedish guy with long hair, and so they just talk about why Sweden is so awesome. And the English, so they said. Like with Eurovision and everything, English is the main language, and the reason the sw- the Swedish do such a good job with pop music. There's lots of theories. Is they have they don't know English that well. They do, but it's pared down, and that's why the songs are so universal because it's the yeah. simplicity of the language. <sighs> where that's so cool. That's yeah, they pair it all down. Because "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" was gonna be "Hit Me Up." It's about a phone call. But it didn't fit in the music Like to them music comes first They, they write the music and then fill in the words wow. And so Hit Me Baby Which we were like she wants to get slapped And it wasn't it was about like hit me up like, call me. And so they just talk about like, language is interesting. And that's why all of them have worldwide hits. It's like simple language that everyone in the world can
0: understand. That's so, yeah. I mean, if you think of like Ace of Base, I mean, I loved all that. They're they're Swedish. Ace
1: of Base is part of the documentary. Of course. I was a huge Ace
0: of Base. I used to call Z100 in New York when I was in eighth grade all the time and ask them to play the sign. I used to up, like I, uh, so, I mean, as a recent immigrant, Ace of Base
1: was everything. Like yeah. that was our family's everything. <laughs> like I had a VHS Ace of Base, like the nine, ugh, amazing. But um, they also they say the Swedes are so good because they like to show how good they are, not talk about it. And I'm like, I don't relate. Um, but they're just <laughs> like we like to get work done. We're not supposed to brag. No one's. I did write a quote down. One of the guys was goes, "It's unbecoming to brag." especially when you don't have to. And I was like, that's a good one. That's a good quote. Yeah. But manifest, let me know. I haven't finished it, but it's a soap opera, but with magical powers There's like sci-fi to in it. It's sci-fi. It's fortune telling. It's mysticism. It's families. It's the government. Don't bring it up
0: to Jared. We're already watching evil. I can't get another show like that. And I don't think he would
1: like it because (laughs) it's too campy. I don't think Jared Uh, would be
0: like, this doesn't make sense. Like he wouldn't, (laughs) it wouldn't be linear to him. Wow. A spot on impression of my, right. (laughs) he would be mad i know he would be mad
1: because (laughs) like at one episode it's like it's the government the government's after us and our kid has cancer next episode the kid doesn't have cancer never mentioned again and the government's taking a break like (laughs) and suddenly tarot cards are a king it's um very very strange
0: um that's really funny
1: but one of the characters is, is is in the nypd so oh okay for maybe there'll be a
0: crossover manifest. <laughs> is it on NBC? You're watching it on Netflix, I know, but is it an NBC show? Uh, I don't know. I think so. Is it? I'm just saying, when it is, then there's more chance of a cross. Marishka shows up on Manifest. One of the Manifest people shows up at the 16th precinct. Manifest <laughs> ended. Oh, it ended. Okay. Sorry. This is like
1: my imposter thing where I'm like,
0: I need another season. And they're like, this ended eight years ago. I kind of love that Netflix gives shows like that, like a sort of second wave of fans. I think that's cool.
1: You know, oh, and let's shout out. I didn't start watching it yet, but our friend Ashling, I saw uh, oh, billboards yeah. all across LA of her show, which I think is one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. And season two is
0: getting critically acclaimed. Yeah, her show is called This Way Up. It's on Hulu here in the States, and it's on. Jeez. It's it's in your she's Irish. So I know we have Irish listeners. It's on where you guys are in the UK. I just don't know what your the channel is, but follow her. Her um, Instagram is we miss B. And she's so great. I love the first season. So excited for the second season. She canceled on hanging out with me in New York once so she could finish something for the second season. So make it worth make it worth me getting stood up. Okay, just watch it. It's great.
1: Lisa, I need to save you from getting hounded online that Hillary Swank did just star in a Netflix TV show. She was in like two seasons. It's called Away. She was also just in a movie. So she is working i'm saving you from okay. getting attacked okay. well, i'm not against hillary <laughs> oh,
0: swank oh, Swank
1: army rise
0: up come get lisa
1: <laughs> the last time i saw hillary swank working was in the comedians and cars getting coffee with julia louis dreyfus and they're driving around and hillary swank was trying to get a parking spot and they accidentally ran into her that's the last time
0: i saw her <laughs> well she's back baby she's on netflix in a show we've never heard of so yeah <laughs> congrats to her um let's get started we've got a great episode today all right i'm so excited to go back into the past a little bit and do this episode which is uh, it's called rooftop and it is from season three episode four so we're into the original three seasons uh october 19th 2001 this aired this episode sometimes i just like to say the date so we can place ourselves in the time period so yes. very early aughts um, post 9-11 only a month out yeah a month after 9-11 great I didn't even think about that wow. What? Do you, yes <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about that I, didn't, I don't always think of everything in context to 9-11 but yes that, that is very close <laughs> um, well you know my favorite
1: tweet of all time is someone going that they were in college and someone asked what's the biggest defining moment of the 2000s and he's like thank God I didn't raise my hand I was gonna say Britney Spears and it was 9-11 <laughs> and <laughs> i will share it every time i see it um and <laughs> I, yeah 911 was
0: huge yeah I mean, Brittany's pretty huge, too, and she keeps enduring. Um, OK, so uh, we open this episode on a couple making out on a rooftop. She looks very young. Um, he's like, come over here. There's a better view in this part of the building. So like they're moving around this little rooftop to try to like make out with the hottest background. I don't really know. Uh, and then they hear a door open they hear footsteps. It's Stabler and Benson there to bust up this make out session. And the guy and the little the girl's like who's that? And he's like, oh, it's the sex police. And you know, that is one of my favorite nicknames for the SVU crew. This guy's name is Leon and Stabler really has it out for him. Stabler reveals that Leon has only been out of prison for two weeks and is quote already back at it. So we've, kind of find out that this guy's got a thing for underage girls. This girl is 14 and they were definitely about to have sex. And then Stabler reveals that Leon is HIV positive, which you are definitely not allowed to disclose other people's HIV status. Um, but we all know how Stabler feels about rules and uh that, is going to come up a lot more times in this episode. So we can have a conversation about how unethical that is, but that is what happens. And that takes us out of the cold open into the credits. And uh, now at the precinct, Elliot is sitting down face to face with Leon asking him like, how many little girls have you done since you got out? Leon's not here for stable or trying to send him back to the joint. So he's just like, I'm, I I was going to use protection. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to wait for my attorney to get here. So he lawyers up. We find out that Leon was in jail for five years for a sex act with an underage girl because Stabler finally got someone to testify that they had sex because I think there's he's had many, many victims of underage uh, girls, but only one was able to testify and do a bring forth real charges. So he did five years right at this moment in the episode, our girl, Samantha Howard Corbin, AKA Corbin Miller's name pops up in the credits. So she was a consulting producer on this episode. Just a fun, t- just a fun little thing. I noticed um, a pre-married, I guess, Samantha Howard Corbin Cabot is like, well, you can't arrest this guy based on something he might have done. And the show deals with this a few other times, like down the road of like, Remember, there's that that episode where the guy has like a full kill room based in like in his uh, basement of his apartment. And he says he's like, I fantasize about killing children, but I've never done it. And it's like thought crime. Like, can you arrest people for things that they are like about to do or might do? So um, that's kind of what's going on here. Cabot's like, you don't really have any anything. And Stabler is like, well. You could get him on on attempted rape because of the girls underage and reckless endangerment because of his HIV status. And Cabot's like, listen, I might be able to do something here. I might have a little trick up my sleeve, but I need Huang and I need you to get him all the like prison records and and medical history over to, to, to Huang so we can see if it will work. Um, this guy's rap sheet. Leon started at seven years old. He had 11 arrests by the time he was 13. And like, no one stops to ever be like, Hmm, think Leon might've had a traumatic upbringing. Like, do you think this might be part of the problem? Like your rap sheet starting at seven is like, that's no accident. Like something's going on, you know? Uh, so meanwhile, Cragen tells Elliot, I'm not going to let you just follow every perp around who might reoffend. And Elliot goes, this guy's penis is a deadly weapon and he's got a thing for young girls. He's not wrong, but I think you're also not allowed as a cop to just go around telling everyone uh, HIV status and also and, sort of stalking this guy.
1: And it's also dangerous to zone in on someone because you miss out on other clues or people like you can't just be like, that's my guy. Like, that's not good yeah. police work. Yeah, for sure.
0: Um now Cabot is walking and talking to executive ADA Stan Volani, who is a recurring character played by the lovely Ron Liebman. I love this actor. He has passed away and he was married to icon Jessica Walter, who also passed away this year. Love them as a little couple together. They've both been on SVU. Um, we find out that... Cabot's plan is to use a mental hygiene law that could civilly commit Leon as a danger to society, but that would set a precedent. Um, So it's kind of a long shot at the precinct Finn you know season three Finn is very different from season 22 Finn he's evolved a lot and uh, he's sort of defending statutory rapists like oh what are we supposed to check their birth certificates like whatever like girls are looking old these days like I don't know it's
1: just not like that's the whole thing like the girls looking old it's like nah I see teens now I see people in college and I'm like who are these fourth graders right like it is so obvious to me and now I even laugh at like how I used to use a fake ID to go to bars and clubs it's like i was clearly a child you know everyone yeah. must have known it like and guys
0: are like she was wearing a tube top kids don't have tube tops like i don't know <laughs> like guys judge by like what they're wearing or how much makeup they have on for like how old they are and it's like no you can pretty much tell it's like you want to fuck a kid sorry you're a <laughs> rapist like there's no confusion i just feel like teens very much look like children yeah yeah So now Cabot and Huang arrive on the scene. Huang's like, I think I can make a case that Leon has antisocial personality disorder. He knows what he's doing is wrong and he doesn't care. And, uh, you know, most people that he says with HIV, like act more, um, you know, sort of, respectful of the society around them and they disclose and they behave more carefully and this guy's just not doing that we find out that uh he contracted hiv from drugs from shooting uh heroin i think in the judge's chambers cabot and leon's lawyers are fighting it out like they're like you can't commit this man based on something that he like might have done And he had condoms and he was going to have he was going to have protected sex. And Cabot's like, no, he's a danger. He expresses his narcissism and anger by having sex with powerless underage girls and not disclosing his HIV status. That's actually what Huang says. But that's Cabot's argument.
1: And how amazing. Like, I forget how exciting like. To have Stephanie March and B.D. Wong together is nice. And now that we know that they're friends and they keep in
0: touch, it's like so exciting to see them together on screen. Totally. I love like I love imagining that once they cut like yell cut, they're like, want to get brunch later? Like they're just friends. And yeah, the judge says you got to prove that he was going to have unprotected sex. So I don't know how they're planning to do that. But then a rape case comes into the precinct and Elliot thinks it matches Leon's M.O. So he'll take it. Olivia's like, "Elliot, I have all this paperwork to do. I don't know what this is like an episode where Olivia like can't be involved cuz she's there but she doesn't really do anything. And we didn't mention this is uh Pixie, Pixie Murrish." Oh yes, this is Pixie. I think the almost uh she almost got fired for it, cut. And Finn volunteers to go with. So a lot of this episode is like Stabler and Finn working together um, in the hospital. We meet this poor teen girl. This girl's a really great actress. Cause I feel so sad for her. She's like telling about her attack, like through tears. Like she's really, really like, it's really heartbreaking. And
1: there's something with like when an eye is covered with a bandage, it like,
0: escalates the oh no yes so much it like makes it all worse yeah you're right and eye patch really ups the ante so she says she met this guy down the block from where she lives he said he was a, a, a promoter and could help her get a rap audition that his name was andre that he took her to a real restaurant walked her home then brought her up to the rooftop started to kiss her and when she said stop he slapped her and pulled a knife on her and raped her um and he said that he was quote the love machine and was gonna make her into a woman and elliot's like i've heard that love machine line before ding 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 my encyclopedic memory for cases that go back into the early 90s so elliot remembers that this case from 1993 where the perp said that and he contacted the victim and the victim has aids so in his mind this is leon this is like something leon's done even though i've heard no proof so far in this episode that leon's done anything violent To coerce these women into sex, like to rape these women like he's he is statutorily raping them because they are underage, but they are all like consenting, even though they're not allowed to consent. You know what I'm saying? Is this like sticky language? I'm just saying he has not pulled a knife. He has not used violent force. Well, that's where the discussion and the argument
1: comes in, where if you have a disease like this and you unknowing like you do not tell people It's like what Stabler said it's a penis with a deadly weapon, so or using it. So that is violence. Purposely
0: try like injecting someone with HIV is violence no no absolutely what i'm saying is the mo's of these crimes where this guy pulled a knife is not matching to me that doesn't match leon leon's never pulled a knife or a gun he just sweet talks these teenagers and then yes has sex with them and has hiv which is horrible um but it just to me it's not totally matching mo's so anyway finn and Stabler are staking out Leon's place. Finn confides um, that he doesn't really, that this is like his neighborhood. He grew up 10 blocks from here, ground zero for the 68 riots. Like he it lives in Harlem and this, it, he grew up in Harlem, excuse me. And um, he doesn't like that somebody's like out there making his neighborhood more dangerous for young girls.
1: And I do have to add that Ice-T's ponytail is in full fluff. This oh, is full
0: fluff Finn. Full, yeah. His ponytail is trying to get an Emmy for best supporting actor here. <laughs> um, so Leon rolls up with a 17 year old girl. Once again, Stabler like pushes him up against a car, tries to arrest him and discloses his HIV status to the 17 year old girl. And she's like, what the fuck? Like she didn't know. So she, she pieces out. Um, and then they have the 1993 victim come in to do a lineup. She can't ID him. It's been, you know, at this point eight, seven or eight years. She can't ID the guy. And then they bring in the poor girl from the hospital with the eye patch. She's in a wheelchair. She can't ID him either, and she's like crying again. I thought this girl was such a good actress. That's
1: in my notes. She is an amazing actress. Yeah. Let's see if she's on. She's Twitter. like maybe
0: once my eye gets better, I can see. Like it's so sad. So like. I just hate when they have to do lineups and they feel like they're failing by not being able to point out their attacker. Cause it's when like it's really just,
1: the cops are failing by not having the right person in the lineup. Yeah. Maybe.
0: Right. Sorry if I went ahead of schedule. <laughs> no, no, totally. Um, so they have to cut Leon loose. So now act two of this episode is where things fucking amp up. Now we're at a crime scene and a girl has been tossed from a rooftop on fire. Like, so horrific her name is Aisha Thompson she's 14 the saving grace I guess is that she was dead before he lit her on fire I mean he this the person who killed her uh, strangled her after she performed oral sex on him and then suddenly this guy like bursts into the crime scene he's hysterical and upset his name is Rodney and this is his sister Finn knows him from the neighborhood he says he was up all night looking for her she'd just been accepted to Stuyvesant she was gonna be somebody and Rodney's like what are you doing to solve my sister's murder so like already you're getting this thing where Rodney's just like get on it like fix it you know figure out who did this um Finn and Stabler they go talk to this um Corporation counsel, I think or or you know whoever covered uh Leon's cases when he was a juvenile and the guy tells him that Leon always seemed like a serial killer in the making to him, that he tortured and killed pets. He torched the treatment facility that he was uh, staying in at one point, And that nine of his 11 callers are for arson. So again, that's interesting, but none of that matches what he's doing now. He's like, we haven't seen him. Like he hasn't like pulled weapons or done anything that seems like physically violent aside from, of course, infecting his young victims with HIV, which is horrible. At the precinct, Huang says that arson makes two out of three for the triad of sociopathy, which apparently is killing animals, setting fires. And the third is, according to Munch, bedwetting, which means... I was one out of three on the triad of sociopathy because I wet the bed for a while, guys. Well, it also <laughs> really makes these
1: killers seem less threatening knowing that they're all pissing the bed, too, Yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> so dro. Um, but yes, I have obviously not into setting fires and have never harmed an animal, so I guess I'm not going to pass that test. Huang suggests that the cops following him might have set Leon off, and that's what, like, escalated him to murder. And Stabler's like, no, 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 no. Like, you can't blame us for this. Like, he's getting all mad and pissy. Well, I
1: also love, because BD Wong responds to that. And he's like, I'm profiling, not accusing.
0: Yeah. You know, like, it's not about you, Stabler. Yeah. Can you exactly. believe that? He's like, I'm just saying my facts and doing my job. And it's not always about what's going on with you. Um, Finn and Stabler go talk to Leon's mom. She's initially like kind of like pissy at them. Like, you guys are going to try to put my son in jail for no reason. And they're like, we just caught him with another teenager. So and she's like, I don't know why he is the way he is. I tried to raise him right. And she's a legend that they she's an
1: SVU legend. Yeah, she was in she's been in a few episodes, but she was in the episode this latest season where she was the judge that put away that bad um, NYC government official. She's the one that like is like the rules can play both sides, bitch. Adrian Lennox. Her name's Adrian. Yes. Lennox.
0: Yes. And she was the one that was like, even though this is what the law calls for, I'm giving you a worse punishment. Basically. Yeah, because he yeah. did that
1: to the boy that raped. He was like, eh, actually, I don't believe it. You're off. And so she has like she's iconic. And she's like, hey, babe, it actually works both ways. And I don't
0: like their sentence. And I'm going
1: to make it worse. How do you like them? Oh, apples? Yes,
0: yes, yes. Yeah. This was Wentworth Miller episode, too. Yeah.
1: So it's cool that she was in season three and season fucking
0: 22. So it's really cool. They love to bring people back. Um, The mom thinks that her son might be shooting dope again and said that the cops were because the cops were dogging him and he couldn't handle going back to prison. So Finn and Stabler are like, let's go check out the rooftop because we know Leon loves rooftops. Finn talks about how instead of vacations to Aruba back in the day they would go to Arufa which was like how they would probably like lie out in the sun or whatever in in Harlem was just go on the roof. And they up there unfortunately he they find Leon dead from an OD uh like just up on the rooftop and uh while they are discovering his body they get a call about another body. This is another girl, another teenage girl raped, killed, beaten with a brick. And Melinda Warner is there, the M.E., and she's like, this couldn't have been Leon. This girl was killed this morning and Leon died last night. So Stabler immediately is like, fuck, I was going down the wrong road. And now these two girls are dead. One girl extremely, like, you know, badly beaten. And, you know, it's like, yeah, Stabler, maybe if you weren't such a one track mind person, you could... uh, Check out a couple different leads. Um, I was about to be like, how do you just keep
1: making the same mistakes over and over? But then I remembered I do that all the time. So what are you going to do? Yeah.
0: My stakes are just lower. (laughs) Leon, uh, Leon's mom is at the precinct and she's like, yeah, maybe you didn't kill my son, but you two all, you all cops love to stick together. Don't you? She has kind of like a great final scene. Um, And then They ID the latest victim. Uh, All these victims are black, young, good students have never been in trouble. So that basically leads Huang to conclude that this perp must be well educated, attractive and seem trustworthy because these aren't girls that are like, yeah, let's go like do drugs or hang out. These are like good, good girls. So like, why are they going off with this person Uh, in further profiling this perp? Huang says any challenge to his sense of control would set him off like these like even hearing the word no is what could just totally cause him to flip a switch and this
1: is an important scene because I feel that is a discussion we have even today where guys are like just say no just say st- if you don't like a guy hitting on you just say stop yeah. And it's like no it's actually quite dangerous and yeah this
0: so this is like a very important scene I think Yes, absolutely. And this is an interesting thing that I didn't really think about, but is so true if you look at, like, a lot of serial killers or, like, guys that you find out about that have wives or girlfriends, like, that guys like this, Huang says, usually have a submissive wife or girlfriend. Like, I have a joke about Ted Bundy having a girlfriend the entire time they were dating, and, like, she was, like, a more of a submissive woman, and she just wanted a a father for her child. So she was, like, the perfect person. Like he never did anything to her. He never hurt her. He never did anything like violent to her. And he was the most violent serial killer. So it's interesting to me that a lot of these guys keep a wife or girlfriend around, maybe for appearances, maybe for alibis. I mean, who knows? Um, cause yeah, I think a lot of people think, Oh, it's the single creepy guy that's doing it. Not the guy that has a girlfriend with a kid or whatever, you know, like that kind of gives you, what do we just We just talked about like the butcher baker from Alaska. Like no one thought about him because he was like a baker that had a wife and two kids, you know, like people definitely think that a family, kids, a wife, whatever, kind of precludes you from being a killer or a psychopath. And it certainly does not. So Rodney shows up in the precinct and he's very pissed that they still don't have uh, the sister's killer. And then another girl is found so this is the third murdered girl that they are finding in this episode which is great and it's all on rooftops and um the super at the building is like very sad he's like i really tried to keep the building safe like this girl was such a good girl and then uh they speak to this victim's mother and she's like i sent my daughter to the corner store for milk and bread and then when they go to the corner store the store clerk remembers a guy coming in behind her and saying that they knew each other they were chit-chatting laughing it up and that they left together so that gives the cops something to go on and uh basically the super puts it together with the description of the victim like oh this looks like a guy in my building malik harris who has recently shaved his head and his beard and like that matches the description so they go up to malik's apartment and he they're like are you malik harris and he's like yeah but professionally i'm known as king so Red flag. You're and, the king of nothing. Um, for those Sex and the City heads here,
1: um, Malik Harris is in one of the most cringeworthy episodes of Sex and the City. But when Samantha dates a black man, this is the black man that she dates.
0: Yes, he is like the music producer
1: yeah and uh but like he has a sister adina who owns like a cool southern fusion restaurant and she doesn't want them yes. dating but they're like samantha just does so many embarrassing things but um he is a hot guy and he fucks samantha so yeah he is very hot so um not this hot man- in this
0: episode not hot in this episode no um So when they walk into his apartment, he has a girlfriend who's kind of like, who is that? And he's like, no one that concerns you. Like, he's extremely rude to his girlfriend and like screams at her in front of the cops multiple times. So I think that's like red flags. We just talked about having a submissive um, wife or girlfriend. Well, yeah, he says you may now dialogue like. Right. I can't
1: even imagine someone saying that in my yes. vicinity. I'm and fucking, the cops definitely pick up on
0: that and they fuck with it There that would later. be an SVU episode based on my crime if someone <laughs> said that. <laughs> he told me I could dialog so I murdered him. <laughs> um he uh he admits that he met he saw the girl. Yeah, she's in my lives in my building. I saw her at the corner store. I walked her home. She shouldn't be out that late. And then his uh to give an alibi, he says to his girlfriend, "Now you may dialog." And she alibis him. Uh now when they're walking out of the building, too, Munch and Finn are like you may now dialogue. They're like talking shit about him as they walk out of the building. So I'm glad the cops are also like, this is not an okay way to talk to a woman. And then Rodney, the brother of Aisha, rolls up with a big group of people being like, these cops don't care what happens to like people in this neighborhood. ice see diffuses the situation perfectly. He's like, I don't care. I'm standing right here trying to find out who did it. Why don't you talk to the media that doesn't cover the murders of three black girls in this neighborhood, you know, like and so he tries to get Rodney to chill. He's like, I'm out here trying to help you. Well, not
1: only does he sick them onto the media, he also says, but does anyone have information to help? And everyone's silent. Yeah. And that's also uh, very deliberate and proving like, you know, I mean, the cops make it hard for a community to want to work with them. But
0: like, yeah, you also have to like snitch, you know right. what I mean? So now Malik is their number one suspect, uh, and they're looking into him and it turns out he was in a car accident. So he was off the grid for three years recovering, like basically learning how to walk again. His legs were shattered apparently. And then he was living with his sister in Detroit. So they're like, okay, let's contract Detroit and see if there's like other victims that match this MO in Detroit. And, um, Craigan tries to like drag Finn for bad mouthing the media and Finn's like white victims get more attention. And he's like, I hear you. I see where you're coming from. And he's like, no, you don't. You're not black and you're not from the hood. Two great points. Nothing I would ever <laughs> accuse Craig enough being is black or from the hood. So um, Finn goes to meet one of his informants and he's like, I heard you're looking to jam up King. He's kind of bullshit in the rap game. He doesn't really have the goods. He just uses it to pick up women and he buys his dope and Coke from one of my corner boys. So it turns out King is a kept man. Like he smooth talks ladies into paying for his lifestyle. So who knows? Maybe that woman that he asked to dialogue is paying for everything for him because it doesn't sound like he's this rap uh, mogul that he claims to be. Finn um, tells Cabot what's up and he's like search his house for drugs and then anything else they find there is just gravy so uh, then they obviously do that and then they head to the studio where this girl is like laying down some rap track and he's sort of like the guy behind the glass like bopping to the beat and then in the studio they arrest him in front of everybody and everyone's like what's going on and the woman is terrible at rapping she is like a real housewife trying to put out an album you know what I mean I feel like they did that on purpose they were like who wants to come in and just lay down really flat bars that are not good <laughs> like that's what happened so at the medical examiner's office uh Tamara tooney is there melinda warner and we learned something very interesting she goes to get a dna swab from malik and he says oh that's against my religion i'm a jehovah's witness and melinda says him even mentioning that means i can't take the sample at all like there's no coercion there's no way to get the sample and from him. Wh-
1: what, how did jehovah's witnesses know about
0: dna testing what is how is this a rule I have no idea. I had never heard of that before, but I'm sure this show is so well researched that it's true. And it seems like something this guy would do. Like we're getting the idea of how, like how manipulative and sort of like, um, savvy this guy is at like, hi- yeah. And diabolical, at, like hiding his, his tracks. So like he knew, knows immediately. Oh, I'm getting, you're trying to take my D. I I mean, she's up to his mouth with the cotton swab when he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Jehovah's witness. Like he never said that before, you know, Jehovah's witness don't give blood or receive blood. They don't believe in transfusion. Okay. So probably like taking material out of someone's body for testing is like illegal. So in their illegal in their church. So he also flirts with Melinda and is like, yo, she is choice. And I'm like, you know what? You are a disgusting killer, but you're right. Tamartuni Tooney is hot. And I don't know why she doesn't get hit on more often by, these creeps. So um or why there's never like a romance with her and one of the cops. She's hot. Um outside the detectives uh Munch and Finn are putting Malik into a car, into the cop car. And they sort of, uh, Finn pushes his head so that his glasses fall off, his sunglasses. And he's like, those frames are from Italy. It's like, okay, your girlfriend bought them for you. And uh, Finn goes to pick them up and crushes them clearly on purpose and is like, uh, offers to replace them. So then, sneaky, sneaky, they get the DNA off of his glasses. And guess what? His DNA matches all six murders and eight rapes. So this guy is a serial rapist and murderer. So now they're uh in a sort of chambers meeting with a judge trying to argue about getting the DNA in and Cabot argues that it's the same as coffee cups or soda cans, the way that the cops always like use deception to, to get uh fingerprints or DNA from people, they did in this case. And the lawyer argues that Finn assaulted Malik and stole his glasses. It was not a discarded object the way that a coffee cup or a soda can would be. So the judge says, "Yeah, you guys forced him. He didn't give up his glasses. The DNA is out." And then they say they have to drop the charges because the DNA is like the smoking guns. So this is pretty bad news in court. Cabot asks for remand and the judge, she's one of these, she's the classic redhead judge. We've talked about her before. The judge is like, I know what you're doing. Cabot, you screwed up your murder case. Now you want me to do your dirty work for you. Not going to happen. So she sets the bail at $2,000. Not a problem for this guy. So he's smirking and then suddenly Rodney jumps out of the galley, attacks Malik and Rodney and um, Malik bites Rodney on the arm. Now they have his DNA for real and they arrest him again. And Cabot is like, this is all a little bit too perfect. And she thinks Finn set the whole thing up. And he's like, do you really want me to tell you if I did? And she's like, not really. So it's kind of a fun little moment with those two. She thinks he definitely gave Rodney the idea for the attack and the bite, which he did. So, When Malik's lawyer agrees it was a setup, Cabot's like, oh, we made your client bite somebody. We can't we couldn't have done that. So Stabler enters with uh, Malik's DNA match to five homicides and four rapes in Detroit during the time he was living there with his sister. So this guy's like he knows he's caught and he goes, I want a deal. And Finn goes, how about right before we execute you? I bring you your last meal. He's fucked. And that's it. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. So they end up like, it's a kind of an interesting episode because you start with this guy who is not a good guy who is hooking up with underage girls and possibly infecting them with HIV just because he sort of wants to get his rocks off without protection and, you know, doesn't care about other people's well being, But then what leads us to this way more, I don't know, more heinous, but additionally definitely heinous more heinous. Crime. Yeah. I think burning is ups the sure, mess. sure. But I mean, you murder somebody quickly, or you give them a disease that was going to kill them over time. I mean, they're both pretty bad. Well, but. I mean, that's the the whole. Deb-
1: There's like this case is very complex, and we'll obviously get into it, but um hiv is not a death sentence right now yes yes i think maybe in 2001 the idea was more it was coming right off of the 90s but was the idea because of media and biases or based on science because even science it was not a you know so we'll obviously get into the complexities of this case so stick around babies Okay, so welcome back. There's actually two cases. Um, The first one and the more meaty one is the case of Nashawn Williams. And that is a 1997 case of a 19 year old black man who was accused of having sex with younger women while he was HIV positive. You can substitute sex for rape do not come for me. Um, Uh But the smaller moment that we will talk about is the courtroom assault. So this like when Rodney jumps and there's a bite and all of that and that DNA being used to convict someone that comes from the headlines, baby. Um, So I'll just touch on that before we get into the Nashawn Williams case. And basically this happened in Springfield, Massachusetts, but there's so many Springfields and it was really I like all the all the newspapers are like the Springfield daily. I'm like, what state are you fucking right. in? Uh, there was, a Do you know, what's crazy everywhere. when I was
0: a kid and I watched the Simpsons. I was always like, where is Springfield? Like I was always obsessed with knowing where Springfield was. And then I, for some reason, because Springfield is the capital of Illinois, right? Um, it is. Yes. I was like, it's Illinois. The Simpsons is absolutely in Illinois. That, for some reason that was just like in my head, but I've been to Springfield, Massachusetts many, many times. It's 20 minutes from where I went to college.
1: I'm assuming you know this. They picked Springfield on
0: purpose, so no one knows where any it is. Okay. Yes, good. yes. In my 11-year-old brain, I was like, it's Illinois, because that's where the capital is.
1: But uh, Matt Groening is from like the Portland area, and if you do go to Portland, a lot of the streets are like Flanders and like, so the oh, streets in Portland are a lot of uh, characters of The Simpsons. So That's that was, really
0: like, fun. Okay, cool. Very
1: fun to walk around Portland and see that for me. Crabapple Drive. Yeah. <laughs> um so Alfred Gaynor is a serial killer and rapist who is active between 1995 and 1998 and he is serving life in prison and he is especially heinous and so fucking awful like so many victims. He seems brutal. I wonder if there's like a fuller episode based on him. I don't know much about him, but I was like fuck this guy's bad. Um so on April 30th in 1998 during one of the court hearings Gainer was attacked by the son of one of his victims. So Eric Downs assaulted Gainer um, and it was wild. So he like burst into the gallery. He repeatedly punched Gainer, climbed on his back, knocked him to the floor, then picked up a chair and smashed it on top of Gainer. Um, and then a woman grabbed Downs and was defending Gainer. And we found out that's Gainer's sister, Kathy. And there was a third person involved. So it was like a full on courtroom scuffle. Um, <laughs> and Eric was charged with assault and contempt of court. Um, I couldn't find his sentencing. Hopefully it was minimal. And as a result of the DNA and fingerprint evidence from the attack, prosecutors were able to prove that the accused had indeed killed Rosemary Downs. Eric Downs' his mother and three other people. So in May 2000, Gaynor was found guilty and received a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Um, but he never has admitted his guilt. So that's just um, a little tidbit. That's
0: like when that. we talked about like Craig Pye or like, it's like, I just don't get when like they've got the evidence, man. Like you did it. Like I just don't, never admitting guilt is like, so you're locked in a prison in your own mind, I feel like. Yeah.
1: Um, so, back to the Nashawn Williams case. Um, So, this is very in line with uh, like Leon, where he was like this wild, bad kid from the jump, but it's because he had a very tough life and it sucks that. And that's why the policing and that's why everyone's so mad at how the world works. Cause instead of just like helping people from a young age thrive, they um, put them in jail and make money. So, it, it is really uh, fucked up. But his mother was dependent on drugs, there was no father figure. And he was put into special education classes in Brooklyn public schools, and nobody can pinpoint when he actually, like, dropped out. So he dropped out of school. No one even knows when or how. So you can see that there was not much, like, guidance in his life in any way. There was nearly a dozen investigations of his mother conducted by the Child Welfare Agency from 1981 to 1996. So, like she like the government knew that she was not doing a good job and his sisters were placed in other um, homes and helped out. But, no one really helped him. Um, and he caused a lot of problems in the neighborhood. He beat an elderly man, um, who regularly like would give him pocket change when he was a kid. Like he had kind of like no loyalty or morals or anything to anybody. And he beat this old man up who would like throw him cat like money once in a while. Um, and then he went from like broken home, um, to thievery to gangs to crack dens and just it's just kind of like the criminal pipeline sort of speak. Um, in a way, yeah. And then he like ended up shooting a store clerk that he talked with regularly. So this guy, Colin Lawrence, was the owner of a store on Nostrand Avenue. And this case was interesting to read about too because I lived a year in Crown Heights and around Eastern Parkway. And so all of these streets are very familiar to me and they mentioned the Albany projects and that was across the street from my home. So I felt like Um, very uh, a part not a part of the story but I you know I like when I covered the case from Skokie there's just something when you can relate to what's happening um so Colin Lawrence is the owner of the store on Nostrand Avenue and he used to give like um Nishan dollars on the weekends so he can go have fun and he used to talk about the Knicks like they were part of the community and in 1993 he entered the store with a gun and shot him but oh ca- but in his hand he's fine he lived and he ended up not pressing charges at all and he's just lucky to be alive and he had a quote where he was like yeah if someone you know comes into rob you know they're willing to kill you because they're fucking desperate like yeah. they have nothing to lose if you know who the person is um and so he had a robbery conviction at 15 he also had a murder charge at 17 but he only sort of uh, served a year of it because he was acquitted of the killing so Wow. That's kind of wild. In all, he amassed eight arrests and at least three convictions um, through his life. And detectives from the 77th precinct said he was very hated and that people were eager to give him up and offer incriminating information about him. He had no friends. Like, not only did people hate him, but then they were also scared of him. So they were committed to wanting to get him off the streets. So they were willing to work with the police because they're like, we hate this guy. (laughs) Like, please lock him up. Um, the lawyer that works with him, um, on the 1994 murder charge that he was found not like where he was found not guilty, um, said, and all the time I represented him, no family called me. Nobody came to the trial on his behalf. Like nobody, nothing cared. And when he, when they reversed the thing, he got up, never said, thank you, left, talked to nobody. Like he was really a loner. Once he left jail in 1995, he moved to Jamestown, New York, which is wild because my best friend is from there and I've been to Jamestown many times. Yeah. So it's like, hold up. We're in Crown Heights and Jamestown. How do I know everything? And there he partied with very young girls and he would cook for them and take them shopping in Buffalo or Erie, Pennsylvania, where our friend's husband, CJ, is from. Like, this is yeah. a wild connect the dots of all of our <laughs> friends. But yeah, like that's the whole thing with like these grown men men that prey on young women it's like yeah going to a real restaurant like from the episode yeah or like buying something at, like in buffalo is a big deal and it wouldn't be to someone their age so he would go back and forth from jamestown to
0: brooklyn from 1995 to 1997 yeah that's a really good point lisa if you're a guy and you're like i can't tell how old these girls are if they're excited that you're taking them for like a meal or like to buy them a tank top like they're teenagers yeah Yeah, (laughs) They're too young. (laughs)
1: Um, And then uh, neighbors and acquaintances said that like sex was one of the most constant things in his life and that he was always having sex in public places or there was miserable circumstances involved or he was bartering sex for drugs constantly. He was a drug dealer. He sold drugs and was a drug user. And so as we know, with like HIV and, you know, like needles and sharing of those things also contribute to passing of the virus. Um, Yes. Like the crime that he became very known for is uh, were crimes against young women and the spread of HIV and AIDS that must might have inf- infected dozens of people. It is really wild that like there was this um, surge of HIV cases and it all can be tracked back to one man like that is very wild. Um... So the New York Times, there's like 14 or so articles spanning a decade and more of time. Like this was a very sensationalized case. And like um, a 15 and 17 year old at the time of this article in October 1997 said that he that like three friends all tested positive for HIV after having sex with him. So he was just like truly out there spreading HIV and it's hard to pinpoint how many people he truly infected and were affected by this. Um, So Chautauqua County authorities believed he infected 10 or more people with HIV and they were young girls like around 16 and as young as 12 like junior high teachers were like, yeah, he was always coming around. And of course, like I mentioned with the drugs, it was like an even wider net. So it's like he's shop like going to junior highs looking for young girls to prey on and then like, drugs too so it's just like a lot of hiv could have been happening yeah so all the numbers kept growing and there's like a lot of discrepancies in it so like in the start there was like 28 people that he had had sex with and then county health officials said it was a total of 110 people identified that had had sex with him and then he also gave 19 more names that he and like that's the thing he was very giving and was like giving constant information and names of people um and like Yeah, one of the girls was 13 years old who contracted HIV from having statutory rape with him. I mean, the language of this is very, very hard. Uh, And then he admitted that he had sex with 200 to 300 women. Two of William's children in Chautauqua County were born with HIV. Oh, no. And then many of the women that were infected continued to have unprotected sex, even after their like diagnosis with other people that also spread the disease. So it was like he was the center of just like all the spikes in Chautauqua County and in New York City of HIV. And then the media like really went wild and it was really sensationalized. And they called him an AIDS monster and AIDS predator. And it was just like, you know a lot of the press were super ignorant about HIV and racial prejudice. And then this is where, so it also raises questions of anonymity for those. We talked about this who test positive, like it used to be believed if names weren't kept secret, it would deter people from getting tested because of the stigma they would get. So like, It was hush hush, but that doesn't help track and stop the spread. So, you know, when we're talking about Stabler, like spreading all the gossip around, it's like they also need to know the names of people so they can help track it and help stop the spread. So the anonymity helped people get tested. It's just like very it's It's just very complicated. And if there wasn't the stigma of HIV and AIDS, this could have been treated in such a better way. But like if someone found out you were gay or something that could affect your life negatively. And so it's just like really complicated. Um, And because of Williams case, New York passed a law that mandated doctors and laboratories to report the names of individuals who test positive for HIV. Doctors are mandated to report the names of any known partners to the New York State Department of Health. Partners may be notified without permission of the patient, but the patient must be informed that their partners will be notified.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the contact tracing that they were trying to do with COVID a little bit. It's like if you had it, they were like people were trying to contact you to be like, who have you been near to sort of get. It's just reminding me of a little bit of that. Yeah. And I was on a
1: set where like we all had to wear little contract tracer things on us. And so if anyone were to test positive, they can track who we spent the most amount of time talking or sitting next to. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Um, he did plead guilty to charges of statutory rape and two counts of reckless endangerment for knowingly infecting two girls with the virus. He pled guilty in 1999 and was sentenced to two prison terms of two to six years for statutory rape and another term of two to six years for reckless endangerment to start after the first terms were served. That should have lasted for 12 years or until April 13th, 2010. He has completed those sentences. And then this is where it gets really fucked up because it's not like you want to be on this guy's side. But what just went down is really messed up. So he has now served a decade longer than his original maximum sentence with no release date in sight. And so now we're getting into like my sources that are from organizations that are trying to help him get out of being incarcerated. So I'm sure they're biased in some way and we can all make our own decisions on how we feel about this. Um, So in 2007, New York passed a law that allows the state to prevent the release of a very small percentage of convicted sex offenders who have had a mental abnormality and are unable to control themselves in the future. Mm. And this was done by the Elliott Spitzer administration.
0: This is sort of like in the episode with this hygiene law that they, mental hygiene law. That 100%. They 100%. Okay. And so
1: the attorney general at the time was Cuomo. Uh. And so Cuomo insists that Nishan's HIV status has nothing to do with his confinement, but HIV was referred to more than 1,000 times during his civil commitment trial. And his HIV status was a central part of the case. So, April 9th, 2010, four days before the end of Nishan's sentence, the New York Attorney General Cuomo filed an application to have him indefinitely civilly committed. Wow. So, days before he was about to be released from prison, the new, like Cuomo, filed filed a petition to have Williams confined indefinitely at Central New York Psychiatric Center in Marcy, New York, as a dangerous sex offender. If Nashan had been reckless and killed someone, even with the maximum sentence for reckless homicide, he would be free. This is basically the first time in New York that someone has been committed like this based largely on HIV status. Wow. And it could be in the country, too. They can't really define it. But it's like that's what I'm talking about with the science where it's like you are making someone be imprisoned for the rest of their life because they have HIV, even though if he's on his meds and his viral load is low, he can he will not pass it. And also he has committed his sentence, but maybe he is someone that can't be trusted. It's just like really Mm. difficult. So according to court documents, Williams failed to complete sex offender treatment and had a poor prison disciplinary record before 2006. He has an antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy and sexual preoccupation. He's now 44 years old. And so there's just a lot of, fucked up shit so they say that sometimes they don't give him his medications and like don't let him see infectious disease doctors and they fuck with his medical care but when he is on all that care it's like really impossible for him to transmit the virus because like i said the viral load is low um and it's just like an added fucked up because new york had campaigns to help end the stigma of hiv and that you can live a normal life while also saying that having aids makes you dangerous and you need to be locked up forever right And so he is still locked up and there's a lot of people that are trying to get him out of, um, this like indefinite hold forever. But then it's like, if you let him out, will he go back to his old ways? Will he complete stuff? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering.
0: I'm like to play devil's advocate. Like this guy had no, just, he had no regard for people in all these years. He could have been wearing condoms. And now I know there's prep and there's all these ways you can keep your viral load and basically have it on non-transmittable, but would you trust this man to do that since he doesn't seem to have, I think that's where the antisocial personality thing comes in is like, you don't care about other people in society is what they think they're saying about him. Yeah. So if that's the case, but then his
1: initial sentence should have been more, but he was 19 when this happened and he's now 44 years
0: old. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear what he has to say. Like, does he, are there interviews with him or anything or not really? Not anything new or current. Yeah. Like, I'd like want to talk to him now and be like, what are your feelings? Like, would you, you know, like, would you? Yeah.
1: Like, you know, it's really tough because when I hear this, I think it's fucked up and he should be released. To me, it's like when I when we read about like Giuliani and Cuomo and all these people and what they did in their past, it was all for their political careers. Like in no way in hell do I think Cuomo cared about anybody but himself and making precedent for himself for his political career. So to me, I just don't trust his motivation for doing this. I also think it is based fully on him having HIV. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like, I talked about earlier when we talked about the episode that it is fucked up knowingly having HIV and like infecting people and like doing that but are we saying that anyone with HIV should be locked away indefinitely forever like and that they're morally worse than other people like no
0: no you're saying it's a slippery slope because I mean I don't think they're talking about locking up somebody who has HIV and then has like a wanton disregard for other people in their sexual activity I guess for sure
1: yeah. but like if he they, if he recklessly killed someone he would be out of prison no problem
0: yeah so he is being held because of his hiv so status. there he's being he- i think he's being held based on his likelihood of reoffending, which is a slippery slope and it's like yeah you can't charge people for something that they like haven't done yet he's served his time for what he's done and now you're basically punishing for something that he hasn't done yet but you think he will do
1: Because I don't know, like there's like halfway house situations or like inpatient, or there's like ways to that he has to go to a parole person or he can have a stabler follow his ass like I don't (laughs) I don't really know, but it feels fucked up that Cuomo can just enact this and keep someone confined for the rest of their life. And it's just him. There's like not even any cases like this. There's very, like. that's crazy. very few. I think maybe there's been more since or something. But like it was the first of its kind to be like. Someone to be held indefinitely, because what we're saying is that we trust our leaders and we don't. Right. So it's like if we're giving the power to the, like, that's the whole thing. It's power to the people like that's the whole point of this country. It's like a jury of your peers. And a jury of his peers gave him the maximum sentence that he could have, and he served that. And to just have some governor who, like, was an attorney general who wants to be a political powerhouse, who we now know is like a fucking creep. Yeah. And has committed weird crimes within his offices. And so it's like this fucking creep can lock up other people indefinitely. Like Cuomo's a shady character, you know, like and all this stuff came out and all of a sudden New York's open and weed's legal like he is playing a selfish game. Most politicians are. So it's just like I don't trust them. If it was a board of psychologists, if it was a board of social workers and scientists and doctors and they all came together and had a hearing and decided this guy is unsafe, that's fine. But to just have this
0: dude, it's like fucked
1: up. I think it's fucked up.
0: Well, it's definitely complicated, but you did um, find a resource that we're going to recommend later during Sister Peg that looks really interesting if people want to sort of get more in-depth in that. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. And now let's talk to our guest, who I think you guys are going to be really excited about. Okay. roll guest <laughs> returning guest our first ever returning guest we by popular demand have brought him back he is a amazing showrunner and executive producer he show ran on order svu from seasons 2 to 12 and he's an icon uh we are so excited to ask him a bunch of questions that you guys sent us so check out our interview with mr neil bear
1: Since we've last spoken to you, Christopher Maloney's ass has become a cultural touch point.
2: (laughs) What was that GQ or something? (laughs) Interview mag. That was like back in the days of Oz. (laughs) That's like 20. Let's see. When I started on SVU in 2000, Chris was on Oz and he was going back and forth like he'd shoot Oz on the weekend. Wow. That's 21 years ago. So has his ass changed in 21 years? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) In rooftop, there's
1: um, kind of a classic SVU moment, we would say, where, um, you know, Ice-T purposely knocks down the perp's glasses and then gets to use them for DNA. And we were wondering what your favorite kind of SVU classic moments like that are.
2: Oh, you mean like the straw, trying to get people to drink soda? Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean it's like um, like I
1: love that. Every time there's like a can, I'm like, "Don't drink!" Um, but it's
2: fair game. Pizza, you know, or, you know, giving them like salty. F- hey, here's some chips. I think we did that, and it's like get them all like you know parched so that they'll yep. have something to drink, um, and then going through trash. And we've done, we did that, you know, so there's always like, how do you get, get somebody to spit at you? I mean, it's like, I think we did that.
0: In Rooftop, you know, they set it up so that ice, well, Ice-T sort of sets up the brother of this victim to attack the guy so that he bites him. And then when we were doing our research, there is kind of a famous case of this happening. Did you guys know about that? Was that like incorporated?
2: Yes. Yes. Cause we are yeah. always, we had. And I presume they still do, though I don't know. We had a full-time researcher. So literally just every day getting new stuff. Like, do you remember we did an episode about a guy, two different versions of this um, and two different episodes. A guy um, was a suspect and he gave his DNA, his blood, and it didn't match. Oh, yeah. We We just
0: covered this episode. With the two?
2: (laughs) With two. That's a real story. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I read that story and I said, well, we've got to do that. So that tube guy was really like bizarre. And then the other version of it, in a sense, was I remember talking to Michelle Fizikas and Tara Butters about this and saying, you guys, this would be a really interesting episode where a guy gives his blood and he's not a match, but they know he's the perp. And the answer was he'd had a bone marrow transplant. Right. Cause he had had, he had, had leukemia. And so his blood is not going to match his, his, uh, saliva or other, other things. So that's how, you know, and then of course the famous one with the, you know, based on Dr. Money, um, where you don't know which they're, they're identical twins at, at birth, even though one had a botched circumcision. And so
0: you don't yep. know
2: their, their DNA matches.
0: We just did that one because the fans, that was our most requested. Identity was like our most requested
2: episode. So funny story is I have these friends who are twins in LA, the Enton twins, um, Edmund and Gary, and they looked really familiar to me when I met them, like at a dinner. And I said, you guys look really familiar. And they're like, really? And I said, you know, you try to figure out like, where did I meet you? (laughs) It turned out they auditioned for the twins.
1: Amazing. (laughs) So I, yeah, I was wondering in terms of like the victim's injuries, um, is that like makeup and hair is that direction? Is that like come off your notes and how do you decide what they're going to look like?
2: So it's a, it's a collaborative effort. We have what's called a concept meeting that we do right after the script comes out and the director has seven or eight days of prep. So they prep for seven days and then they shoot for eight, nine days, sometimes a little bit more, depending on what the episode is. And um, sometimes we do what's called crossboarding where we'll shoot two episodes at once and or tandeming. So we did, that's how we did so many episodes some years is that we'd have Ice and Belzer doing a scene. We'd have Mershka and Chris doing a scene. Then Mershka and Belzer doing a scene and Chris and Ice doing a scene. And we'd be shooting two episodes at once. So we had more more shows that season. I don't think they do that anymore. It was really hard to do, but it was fun. And so um, uh, in terms of makeup, uh, all of these things are discussed in the concept meeting. So the everybody is there, every department head. So the director, the directing producer. So during my time, the 11 years was Ted Kotcheff, the line producer, David DeClerk. Gail Berenger, so they're in charge of the budget, the locations person, Trish Aldesic, and then hair, makeup, and wardrobe. And so when we have certain elements like a look of someone um, that would need like prosthetics or things like that, we would have uh, sidebar conversations after we had read through the script with all of the department heads to really talk in particular, like when when we um when Stephanie left the show the first time because she got blown up, we had a lot of conversation about how to blow up the car. And then I knew we had planned that it was that she was put into witness protection. But um, you know we didn't want to give that away right away. because we thought, you know Stephanie might want to come back. You know, and they all keep coming back over and over. You know, Tamara Tooney comes back and, you know, they they all they all come back. So um, unless they're killed, like Mike Doyle's character, you know, when Stucky, uh. when Stucky killed him. You know, we had to have a sidebar for that, like, you know, the blood and all that sort of stuff when we stabbed him. Or we killed Sister Peg. I love Sister Peg.
0: Oh, when you killed sister peg
1: well wildly that's one of our friend's girlfriends he texted me going my girlfriend's the one that like stabler shot i'm like are you kidding me you're dating <laughs> royalty um speaking of being bringing people back they recently just did like born psychopath and they did 10 years later is there any episodes during your time that you would love to see a continuation on
2: there are so many like in terms of when you do a show that's not really in the sort of full consciousness of the audience, like we did the first show about giving, uh, a trans teenager hormone blockers. And so that was with Aisha Hines that episode. I remember she played the principal. Um, I'd like to see like what happened, like with that kid. Um, because, that was not even talked about because I'm a pediatrician. I knew about it, but you know, a good example would be from a different show where when I did ER, I worked with Gloria Rubin, who was on SVU, of course, as a, a an attorney, um, U S attorney. Um, she did like the story. She did a story, a really good one about sex trafficking kids, um, in the U S. So, um, I asked John Wells on ER if he would bring Gloria back in year 14 the year before ER ended she left in year 5 I think of ER and he did and he showed her as a physician a physician assistant who was doing well she had HIV she was HIV positive but she was taking medication she was living a full and active life and people love seeing that they love seeing that sort of positive side so it would be interesting you know, to bring, you know, if they could bring Belzer back or something too, you know, we brought, we brought on his wife from homicide, um, Carol Kane yes, in an episode because, you know, I just think it's fun. So that's kind of an illustration of that where we brought someone back in a sense from another show because Belzer's character much had this continuing line through many different shows and so um, we were able to do that. We brought back, for instance, we brought Marley Maitland back because Bowser you know, loved working with her. She was nominated for an Emmy for her episode. So we brought her back. And so we would do that. Marsha Gay Harden, we love. So we brought her back.
1: Yeah. Wait, but for the Marley Maitland, so their characters, you could tell, really had a bond. So that was written, or did you? see their vibe on set or it was just both saw the vibe
2: no no plan to have marley twice but richard loved working with her and he was like wow i just really you just said it i so vibed with her that we just said we got to bring her back and we'll make it really sad
0: we have a bunch of these uh questions from our audience and we can just ask them to you and if you want to just pass just say pass or that doesn't make sense (laughs) or whatever um so, so one person asked, what is the biggest medical inconsistency in SVU?
2: That the DNA comes back so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's an easy one. I mean, because with um, Mike Doyle's character and, and Tamara Tooney's character, they were like so quick. But, but I don't think that we made stuff up. We were using the, the best technology that existed at the time. I, I think I mentioned this before that SVU is really um, an amazing historical Uh, assessment of what's available and and the show kept using new techniques. So when I started, they had blackboards and they went to dry erase boards and then we went to cell phones and we went to GPS and then we were taking, you know, iPads out to the scene. And so that kept refreshing the show in a way because we had new technology that moved us forward. But the technology is a lot quicker. You get responses more quickly
0: you see this in rooftop too, where like Stabler finds this, he remembers this line from an old case. And he's like, this is from before we were really doing DNA testing. So, and now it's like a few years later and it's like, okay, let's put the DNA in the system. So interesting. Yeah, you're right. It is a little bit, not like a time capsule, but yeah, like a historical
2: um, um, study. Yeah. Yeah.
0: A document. Yeah. Um, so did you ever have to change an episode last minute?
2: Before I came on the show, there was an episode that I only remember it was called Taken. And Mariska has like a pacifier around her neck and a lot of glitter. Like, oh,
0: yeah. She's like in a raver oh outfit. Oh, my God.
2: So so <laughs> the show turned out to be like 12 minutes too short. It was just like... And, and it was... Kind of in this interim period where there was no showrunner, and then I came on, and we had to figure out how we couldn't just throw it out. And so, and you know, Dick has, Dick Wolf has sort of very sp- specific ideas of how he wants things to go, like no flashbacks, no, um, you know, speaking directly into the camera, all of these rules. I said, Well, you know, I have an idea. He goes, Do whatever you want. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we shot for literally, around the clock, including all night long to get it done. And we have these, it's the only time I think you'll see it. We have these interviews with each of our characters, Mariska, Benson, Stabler, um, Munch, Finn, Cragen. And they're like being interviewed. And it's all interwoven into the show because we didn't have the money to go back out and shoot, reshoot you know and start over of course it's really expensive so we just did these like strange talking to the camera interviews it worked it was like
1: was dick mad or no he was like oh
2: that's so great <laughs> it's like it's like whatever it takes do it
0: so what was the most controversial ending to an episode
2: the one with shannon Sossaman and billy campbell
0: Oh
1: I actually that one drives me insane. Uh, Insane.
2: uh, 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 And it was like we find the defendant and then people are like, wait, did did something happen to my television? I know. You're like, my DVR is broken. (laughs) And the answer is, no, you gotta figure out what what you think. This is why, you know, this was obviously before me too, but it was a, you know, we, we wrote it so that both you you would believe or disbelieve both of them. Right, so that really pissed off a lot of people.
0: (laughs) I think just because you have us years and years with everything getting wrapped up in a bow on these episodes, even if it's a bad bow, like even if you're like, oh my God, that's horrific or that's not what I wanted to happen. Like you always know what happens. And that's the first episode where you're like, I have to think for myself. No. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And it's like, so maybe they'll, maybe they'll come back and Billy Campbell will be, uh, you know, arrested again for doing the same thing and you'll figure it out. You could could actually kind of go back to that story and see what happened and whether or not he had other, other, you know, people coming out and saying that he had done something similar. You could do that.
0: Right. And then you
2: could give, you could tie a bow on it.
1: Are there any episodes you look back on and you're like, with now societal norms, like changing that you kind of cringe at, or you wish you could change or adapt? Um, That's an audience question. Yeah,
2: not really. I mean, because it's of its time, and so you know, we right. talked about should we have made Stabler as aggressive? Though that was his character. Um, so that came up a lot during you know the whole conversation about police, and so that was something that you know they're thinking about a lot on over organized crime now. And they're actually addressing that with this character. So, so there's that. But in terms of something that feels, you know, I think I would do more sort of rooftop-like shows, probably more exploration of the racial bias, racial inequities. If, you know, yeah. we, had, um, we had on our show more female writers than male writers, for most of the seasons that I ran the show. Um, so I think that that was a really, that perspective was really welcome and a good thing. And, you know, we had um, African-American writer, female writer, Judy McCrary, who wrote the most intense episodes. <laughs> she wrote the ludicrous episodes and all of the, the really intense Shows, you know, the writers have kind of specialties of intensity or more humor or more sort of uh, family kind of thing. So I would assign things different stories based on the, the writers personalities often as well.
1: Have you ever been sued or had any legal action threatened from like a ripped from the headline situation where someone came after you guys or was mad?
0: Not you, Neil Bear, obviously.
2: No, not really. I (laughs) mean, we had one incident that all I'll say is that it had to do with the show The View.
0: Okay. Oh, okay. I'm like writing this down to do. I know what episode this is. Okay, (laughs) we'll leave it at that. A lot of our questions have to do with everybody being obsessed with obviously Benson and Stabler getting back together. The tension between them is back in the news kind of because of, of organized crime. And, and, you know, now his wife has passed and everything. Um, in your 12 years on the show or 11 years on the show, were you ever tempted to make an Olivia, sorry, a Benson Stabler romance happen?
2: No, but I gave everybody what they wanted when we put Nushka in her bra and panties and <laughs> in his underwear the yeah. Very famous hide the monkey in the ball. <laughs> so, wildlife. So that was like what everybody wanted wildlife, yes. Everybody wanted to happen. So that was purposely written that way.
0: Um I, there's another question from a listener that I actually never thought of that I that I wonder um if you have any uh, info on. Like somebody asked, what precautions are taken when child actors have to do like these intense scenes about abuse?
2: It's a really good question. Um, one of my another favorite episode is the one. I think this has been listed like in the top ten SVUs. And Judy wrote this one. This is about the the girl. I think it's with Aiden Quinn, phenomenal actor. Plays oh
0: yes, phenomenal. phenomenal the girl actor. that has the perfect pitch. She has
2: Williams syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's you know she has a, a genetic syndrome where she kind of repeats what she hears and it was really interesting. I think there's a lot of conversation with the director and the parents because the parents are on the set and protecting. I I know I remember um, we were doing a scene on the ER with Michael Michelle who did that. Another Judy, just the Judy Day, another, the one where Blair Underwood burns her um eric Lasalle directed that episode michael was on er and i remember a little girl asking her some question about something about because she has she somebody's talking about something sexual and i remember michael and michelle saying honey you're gonna have to ask your mother about that but that but but for a scene like on SBU, um we've had you know we've had kids Parents say they won't won't let their kids do scenes, which is their right to do. And we want to make sure that the kids feel comfortable and all of that. So there's a lot of conversation with the director particularly and the parents because parents are on the set. And, you know, the kids work only a small amount. And also we have to be very careful of what we do so that we don't traumatize the kids. So oftentimes... We'll cast someone who is older than that age as another way around that because we really, it's not about like getting the best performance from some seven-year-old. It's like maybe we need to have somebody who's older. Maybe we have to write it a little bit differently so that it's not traumatizing to the kid. We don't want to do that.
0: Well, I know you told us last time we spoke to you that, you know, a lot of the the episodes came from, you know, you reading sort of like a medical journal or an article about some new thing and, you know, finding out about cases. So has there been anything that you've read about since you left the show that you're like, this would make a great SVU? Yeah.
2: And I actually told Peter Jankowski, and I don't know, you'll know if they did this or not, but I heard about a rapist who was suing to have test custody, drunk custody of the child.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's happened. They did do that.
2: Yeah. And I called Peter and I said, you got to do this because I can't believe we didn't do this. But And now they've passed laws that, no. You can't. Yeah. Wow. like, whoa, it was like, that's, so I've certainly, I've certainly, that was the one story that really got me like, oh my gosh, that would have made an incredible SVU. But I, but I went to Peter and I called him. Said, "Hey, you guys should do this." And here's the story I read.
0: Especially with like uh, Benson's character having her background that she has, like you know, if your father had wanted to sue for custody of you, would
2: that appear? exactly? Yeah. So you could just see what, yeah, you know, where that would go, right? And that would be like you know an intense episode.
0: Well, I forgot. Do you still watch the show ever? Do you catch it here and there or not really? No, I haven't.
2: I decided when I left ER, I did ER the first seven years. And I thought, you know, it was so wonderful. I got to work with amazing actors. And the same with SVU for 11. And so I just wish them the best. But I just move on to another show. So then I did... I gifted man with Patrick Wilson, but that was only on for years. So there's nothing else to watch. And I did under the dome and that was three years and done. So there's nothing else to watch. And then I did designated, but I did the end of designated. So, yeah. so I did watch the first two years of designated because I'd never been in the position where I was taking, well, as I take that back. SVU, I didn't watch the first season. I had watched the pilot and a few of them because Mariska had been on ER and we're very close. And so I wanted to see what was going on, but I didn't have any idea I was going to be on SVU. So I didn't watch all of season one.
0: But seasons 13 through 22 are a mystery to you.
1: Well, I wonder if we can even ask... it. So, without seeing the show for this long, how would you... Like, can you even answer? How would you end it? How do you see SVU ever ending?
2: Well, I mean... <laughs> it's the obvious. Though, you know, there has to be some twists, I would imagine, to get there. But it would be interesting to bring as many people back as possible as well. So...
0: We were wondering: Has anyone ever been? Have you ever written a character off the show, other than for contractual reasons? Like, have you ever just been like, "We got to write this person off"?
2: Yeah, um, not for contractual reasons, but just for storytelling. So the answer would be: I called the wonderful actor Christine Lottie. and oh. Oh, and I said, "We have, I love, we her. have another episode for you." She's like, "Great!" And she was so good on the show. And I said, "And we're going to do something that I think you've never." done before as an actor and she's like "Uh (laughs) uh-oh what is that christine and she goes you're going to kill me and i said yes and she's like you know and i said i was kind of looking and thinking about all of your work and i don't recall you ever being killed you've done tough stuff you know and beautiful beautiful film she did called housekeeping which if you haven't seen is amazing based on the Um, uh, on the novel she's just incredibly good in it and so I said yeah we're gonna kill you because we have Deborah messing on and this whole kind of thing going on and we just want this like the emotionality of it and you've had this kind of relationship with Benson that stirred up issues about her mother so she has this intense emotionality with your character so that was a character and also Mike Doyle it was like, yeah. you know, and then the New York Times did an article about how many times he'd been killed off on shows.
0: And then I just saw him in this movie called The Invitation where he gets murdered pretty badly oh, as well. Oh. I love that movie. <laughs>
2: you know, it happens to Mike, but he's a wonderful actor. So and Stucky. Woo,
0: yeah. He's Ugh. the most
1: hated character. I mean, William Lewis, obviously so scary, but <laughs> people hate Stucky. Yeah. He yeah. Uh, really irks people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned Deborah Messing, which that you know, like her and Mariska are really good friends. Are there any cases where one of the main actors is like, "Can we just have my friend on, like, oh, yeah. I want Deborah on?"
0: Yeah, cool. <laughs>
2: Maria, hello.
0: Oh wow! Oh yeah! Fantastic
2: episode. Oh my god, with the guy from-
0: with Calvin. That whole that that was how we first started the Benson motherhood journey. Right. And, and the
2: guy who played her horrible father was from Full Metal Jacket. He was the sergeant in full metal jacket. So Maria and Marisha are are very, very close friends. And so we said, we got to get Maria on and do something really intense. And so we did. Maria's great.
1: What are you working on
2: now before we all go? Um, I have a show that's going to be on, but I can't say what it is.
0: Okay. Okay. It's
2: going to be on. (laughs) I can't even say what it's going to be on. I have an unscripted show that's going to be on. In the fall, really? So we we can talk about it when it's on. It's going to be fun. I can't. Yeah, come back
0: on when you're doing. You do that and and tell us about it. I would love to. Wow, Neil Bear, the legend, the man, the myth, the legend. That was so great. Um, The bearer of great scoop. Yes, always. He always has great (laughs) info for us.
1: And just to brag to all of you, we did get a few off-the-record statements from him. So That we
0: weren't allowed to put on the pod, unfortunately. we can't share, but know that he spilled some tea, baby. And if you guys are interested, we have one little extra tidbit on our Instagram. If you're not following us on Instagram, get over to That's Messed Up Pod on Instagram so that you can... Here, one last piece of scoop from Neil. Um, but let's jump into our post-mortem for Rooftop. What did we learn? What a dark episode. I mean, if a man tells you that you can dialogue now, it's time to walk out the door. <laughs> it's time to leave. I was going to
1: say, if you really need
0: evidence in a
1: case, just hop on over and bite somebody. Yeah. You know, get their skin in your teeth. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. From now on, now we know how to get DNA, like start a fight, get their DNA all over you and go straight to a medical examiner.
0: And I guess also uh, another thing we've learned is that if you don't want your DNA taken, you can just say you're a Jehovah's witness.
1: Yep. That's, you know, a lot of DNA evidence. I mean, lessons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why do I seem like I feel like I'm drunk, but I'm not. (laughs) (sighs) I don't know. Um, also racism sucks. Police suck. The law suck. The government sucks.
0: So that's something I'll say. It does feel like after watching this episode, though, it does it does feel like we've come like a long way in terms of like stigma against AIDS. You know, like I I feel like now more people accept that AIDS is not a death sentence. It's not like the kind of thing where you like shun people that have it. I mean, I have friends with HIV like it's just not a, a thing that you need to, you know, Shy away from talking about, or, you know?
1: No, it's really a giant. I mean, most of this country is an embarrassment stain, but (laughs) the way this country and Reagan and everyone handled AIDS is so fucked up. Yeah. And it's really not even talked about how much of a fuck up that was and how many people ta- we like friendly, but talks about this and more people that are smarter and no more. But it's like we truly lost a generation of people. hmm. And that's what's happening now where people are like, oh, fuck, there's not enough job. People want to sit on unemployment. Why is there a shortage of empl- employees? And it's like, I didn't think about this, but the Internet told me six hundred thousand people died gonna create some shortages you know what i mean like people are so selfish and self-centered that it's like we haven't even thought about like the reason there might be a shortage of certain jobs is because people fucking died
0: Mm. yeah you know
1: we just ignore it and like the whole aids like so so many talented incredible people died and it's fucked up. it's like the holocaust
0: or it's like we lost generations of people yeah And I just speaking of the Emmys, what we were talking about earlier, very nominated show Pose, like they really jump dive into that and you really get a sense of like how devastating it was in the 80s and 90s. Like,
1: yeah. And then everyone is like shading you. Doctors probably don't want to work on you. No one understands that you're treated like shit. It's just like devastating. You're like dying of a disease and no one cares. And then they blame you for it and think you're like a demon
0: because you have it. Yeah i don't know if that's what i got from this episode uh. (laughs) no i was just noticing that like you know that episode just seems like a little bit uh, like dated almost in the way that they like talk about hiv and like you know what we learned from this nishan williams case and everything it just it's like it's feels like we've made some strides i don't think it's totally non-discriminated against but you know i think we've made some strides um well, that leads us kind of perfectly right into what would Sister Peg do this week? This is our weekly segment where we highlight an institution or an organization that you can um, get more information from or donate to and... Uh today we are highlighting uh the black aids institute it's um blackaids.org. and the black aids institute they also go by bai so bai's mission is to stop the aids epidemic in black communities by engaging and mobilizing black institutions and individuals to confront hiv so and another what was sister peg resource we have two for for you this week um there is a book if you're interested in learning more about the nishan williams case there is a book called notorious hiv the media spectacle of nishan williams by thomas Chevry. and that is available wherever books are sold mostly amazon i feel like um and uh if you're interested in learning more about the nishan williams case and join us next week we will be covering the episode peak
1: that's p-i-q-u-e wild um season two episode 20 um hulu peacock the library all that (laughs) jazz (laughs) so enjoy watching do your homework and we'll see you next week bye bye
0: That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right Production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at That's Messed up pod at gmail.com. Follow the
1: podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources
0: and more information.
1: Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton, And to our sound engineer and personal
0: hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth. Danielle Kramer and everybody at exactly right media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on
1: Apple podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. <laughs>